Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Chapter 15 of The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15. Nest Building. After another week of rain, the high arch of blue sky appeared again, and the sun which poured down was quite hot. Though there had been no chance to see either the secret garden or Dickon, Mistress Mary had enjoyed herself very much. The week had not seemed long. She had spent hours of every day with Colin in his room, talking about rajahs or gardens, or Dickon and the cottage on the moor. They had looked at the splendid books and pictures, and sometimes Mary had read things to Colin, and sometimes he had read a little to her. When he was amused and interested, she thought he scarcely looked like an invalid at all, except that his face was so colourless, and he was always on the sofa. "'You are a sly young one to listen and get out of your bed to go following things up like you did last night,' Mrs. Medlock said at once. "'But there's no saying it's not been a sort of blessing to the lot of us. He's not had a tantrum or a whining fit since you made friends.' The nurse was just going to give up on the case because she was so sick of him, but she says she doesn't mind staying now you've gone on duty with her, laughing a little. In her talks with Colin, Mary had tried to be very cautious about the secret garden. There were certain things she wanted to find out from him, but she felt that she must find them out without asking him direct questions. In the first place, as she began to like to be with him, she wanted to discover whether he was the kind of boy you could tell a secret to. He was not in the least like Dickon, but he was evidently so pleased with the idea of a garden no one knew anything about that she thought perhaps he could be trusted. But she had not known him long enough to be sure. The second thing she wanted to find out was this. If he could be trusted, if he really could, wouldn't it be possible to take him out to the garden without having anyone find out? The grand doctor had said that he must have fresh air, and Colin had said that he would not mind fresh air in a secret garden. Perhaps if he had a great deal of fresh air, a new Dickon and a robin, and saw things growing, he might not think so much about dying. Mary had seen herself in the glass sometimes lately, when she had realised that she looked quite a different creature from the child she had been when she had arrived from India. This child looked nicer. Even Martha had seen a change in her. "'The air from the moor has done the good already,' she had said. "'Thou'rt not nigh so yellow, and thou art not nigh so scrawny.' Even the hair doesn't stamp down on the head so flat. It's got some life in it, so as it sticks out a bit. It's like me, said Mary. It's grown stronger and fatter. I'm sure there's more of it. It looks it for sure, said Martha, ruffling it up a little round her face. Thou'rt not so ugly when it's that way and there's a bit of red in the cheeks. If gardens and fresh air had been good for her, perhaps they would be good for Colin. But then if he hated people to look at him, perhaps he would not like to see Dickon. "'Why does it make you angry when you are looked at?' she inquired one day. "'I always hated it,' he answered, even when I was very little. Then when they took me to the seaside and I used to lie in my carriage, everybody used to stare, and ladies would stop and talk to my nurse, and then they would begin to whisper, and I knew that they were saying I shouldn't live to grow up. Then sometimes the ladies would pat my cheeks and say, "'Poor child!' Once, when a lady did that, I screamed out loud and bit her hand. 
She was so frightened she ran away. She thought she had gone mad like a dog, said Mary, not at all admiringly. I don't care what she thought, said Colin, frowning. I wonder why you didn't scream and bite me when I came into your room, said Mary. Then she began to smile slowly. I thought you were a ghost or a dream, he said. You can't bite a ghost or a dream, and if you scream they don't care. Would you hate it if... If a boy looked at you, Mary said uncertainly. He lay back on his cushion and paused thoughtfully. There's one boy, he said quite slowly, as if he were thinking over every word. There's one boy I believe I shouldn't mind. It's that boy who knows where the foxes live. Dickon. I'm sure you wouldn't mind him, said Mary. The birds don't, and other animals, he said, still thinking it over. Perhaps that's why I shouldn't. He's a sort of animal charmer, and I'm a boy animal. Then he laughed, and she laughed too. In fact, it ended in their both laughing a great deal, and finding the idea of a boy animal hiding in his hole very funny indeed. What Mary felt afterward was that she need not fear about Dickon. On the first morning, when the sky was blue again, Mary wakened very early. The sun was pouring in slanting rays through the blinds, and there was something so joyous in the sight of it that she jumped out of bed and ran to the window. She drew up the blinds and opened the window itself, and a great waft of fresh-scented air blew in upon her. The moor was blue, and the whole world looked as if something magic had happened to it. There were tender little fluting sounds here and there and everywhere, as if scores of birds were beginning to tune up for a concert. Mary put her hand out of the window and held it in the sun. "'It's warm, warm,' she said. "'It will make the green points push up and up and up, "'and it will make the bulbs and roots work and struggle with all their might under the earth.' She kneeled down and leaned out of the window as far as she could, breathing big breaths and sniffing the air, until she laughed because she remembered what Dickens' mother had said about the end of his nose quivering like a rabbit's. "'It must be very early,' she said. "'The little clouds are all pink, and I've never seen the sky look like this. No one is up. I don't even hear the stable boys.' A sudden thought made her scramble to her feet. "'I can't wait. I'm going to see the garden.' She had learned to dress herself by this time, and she put on her clothes in five minutes. She knew a small side door which she could unbolt herself, and she flew downstairs in her stocking feet and put on her shoes in the hall. She unchained and unbolted and unlocked, and when the door was open she sprang across the step with one bound, and there she was standing on the grass, which seemed to have turned green, and with the sun pouring down on her and warm sweet wafts about her, and the fluting and twittering and singing coming from every bush and tree. She clasped her hands for pure joy, and looked up in the sky, and it was so blue and pink and pearly and white, and flooded with springtime light, that she felt as if she must flute and sing aloud herself, and knew that thrushes and robins and skylarks could not possibly help it. She ran around the shrubs and paths towards the secret garden. "'Tis all different already,' she said. "'The grass is greener, and things are sticking up everywhere, and things are uncurling, and green buds of leaves are showing. This afternoon I am sure Dickon will come.' The long warm rain had done strange things to the herbaceous beds which bordered the walk by the lower wall. There were things sprouting and pushing out from the roots of clumps of plants, and there were actually here and there glimpses of royal purple and yellow unfurling among the stems of crocuses. Six months before Mistress Mary would not have seen how the world was waking up, but now she missed nothing. When she had reached the place where the door hid itself under the ivy, she was startled by a curious loud sound. It was the caw, caw 
of a crow, and it came from the top of the wall, and when she looked up there sat a big, glossy, plumish blue blackbird, looking down at her very wisely indeed. She had never seen a crow so close before, and he made her a little nervous, but the next moment he spread his wings and flapped away across the garden. She hoped he was not going to stay inside, and she pushed the door open, wondering if he would. When she got fairly into the garden, she saw that he probably did intend to stay, because he had alighted on a dwarf apple tree, and under the apple tree was lying a reddish animal with a bushy tail, and both of them were watching the stooping body and rust-red head of Dickon, who was kneeling on the grass, working hard. Mary flew across the garden to him. "'Oh, Dickon! Dickon!' she cried out. "'How could you get here so early? How could you? The sun has only just got up.' He got up himself, laughing and glowing, and tossled his eyes like a bit of the sky. "'Eh,' he said, "'I was up long before him. How could I stay to bed? The world's all fair begun again this morning, it has, and it's working and humming and scratching and piping and nest-building and breathing out scents till you've got to be out on it, set a line on your back. When the sun did jump up, the moor went mad for joy, and I was in the midst of the heather, and I run like mad myself, shouting and singing, and I came straight here. I couldn't have stayed away, while the garden was lying here waiting. Mary put her hands on her chest, panting, as if she had been running herself. Oh, Dickon, Dickon, she said, I'm so happy I can scarcely breathe. Seeing him talking to a stranger, the little bushy-tailed animal rose from its place under the tree and came to him, and the rook, cawing once, flew down from its branch and settled quietly on his shoulder. "'This is a little fox-club,' he said, rubbing the little reddish animal's head. "'It's named Captain, and this is Soot. Soot, he flew across the moor with me, and Captain, he run, same as if the house had been after him. They both felt same as I did.' Neither of the creatures looked as if he were the least afraid of Mary. When Dickon began to walk about, Soot stayed on his shoulder, and Captain trotted quietly close to his side. "'See here,' said Dickon. "'See how these is pushed up? And these, and these, and air. Uh, look at these here!' He threw himself upon his knees, and Mary went down beside him. They had come upon a whole clump of crocuses burst into purple, and orange and gold. Mary bent her face down and kissed and kissed him. "'You never kiss a person in that way.' she said when she lifted her head. Flowers are so different. He looked puzzled, but smiled. Eh, he said, I've kissed Mother many a time that way when I come in from the moor after a day's roaming, and she stood there at the door in the sun looking so glad and comfortable. They ran from one part of the garden to another, and found so many wonders that they were obliged to remind themselves that they must whisper or speak low. He showed her swelling leaf-buds on rose-branches which had seemed dead. He showed her ten thousand new green points pushing through the mould. They put their eager young noses close to the earth, and sniffed its warmed springtime breathing. They dug and pulled and laughed low with rapture, until Mistress Mary's hair was as tumbled as Dickens, and his cheeks were almost as poppy-red as his. There were every joy on earth in the secret garden that morning, and in the midst of them came a delight more delightful than all, because it was most wonderful. Swiftly something flew across the wall and darted through the trees to a close-grown corner, a little flare of red-breasted bird, with something hanging from its beak. Dickon stood quite still and put his hand on Mary, almost as if they had suddenly found themselves laughing in a church. "'We must not stir,' he whispered in broad Yorkshire. "'We must not scarce breathe.' 
I knowed he was mate hunting when I seed him last. It's Ben Weatherstaff's robin. It's buildin' his nest. I stay here if us don't fight him. They settled down softly upon the grass and sat there without moving. Us mustn't seem as if us watchin' him too close, said Dickon. He'd be out with us for good if he got the notion us was interfering now. He'll be a good bit different till all this is over. He's settin' up housekeeping. He'll be shyer on readier to take things ill. He's got no time for visitin' and gossipin'. Us must keep still a bit and try to look as if us was grass and trees and bushes. Then when he's got used to seein' us, I'll chirp a bit and he'll know us'll not be in his way. Mistress Mary was not at all sure that she knew, as Dickon seemed to, how to try to look like grass and trees and bushes. But he had said the queer thing as if it were the simplest and most natural thing in the world, and she felt it must be quite easy to him, and indeed she watched him for a few minutes carefully, wondering if it were possible for him to quietly turn green and put out branches and leaves. But he only sat wonderfully still, and when he spoke dropped his voice to such a softness that it was curious that she could hear him, but she could. "'It's part of the springtime this nest building is,' he said. "'I warrant it's been going on in the same way every year since the world was begun. They've got their way of thinking and doing things, and a body had better not meddle. You can lose a friend in springtime easier than any other season if you're too curious.' "'If we talk about him, I can't help looking at him,' said Mary said as softly as possible. We must talk of something else. There's something I want to tell you. He'll like it better if us talks of something else, said Dickon. What is it that there's got to tell me? Well, do you know about Colin? she whispered. He turned his head to look at her. What does there know about him? he asked. I've seen him. I've been to talk to him every day this week. He wants me to come. He says I'm making him forget about being ill and dying, answered Mary. Dickon looked actually relieved as soon as the surprise died away from his round face. "'I'm glad of that,' he exclaimed. "'I'm right down glad. It makes me easier. I know I must say nothing about him, and I don't like having to hide things.' "'Don't you like hiding the garden?' said Mary. "'I'll never tell about that,' he answered. "'But I says to Mother, I says, I've got a secret to keep. It's not a bad un. They knows that. It's no worse than hiding where a bird's nest is. That doesn't mind, does the? Mary always wanted to hear about Mother. What did she say? she asked, not at all afraid to hear. Dickon grinned sweet-temperedly. Was just like her what she said, he answered. She gives me head a bit of a rub and laughed, and she says, Eh, lad, they can have all the secrets they likes. I've knowed the twelve year. How did you know about Colin? asked Mary. Everybody as knowed about Mr. Craven knowed there was little lad as was like to be a cripple, and they knowed Mr. Craven didn't like him to be talked about. Folks is sorry for Mr. Craven because Mrs. Craven was such a pretty young lady, and they were so fond of each other. Mrs. Medlock stops in our cottage whenever she goes to Thwaite, and she doesn't mind talking to Mother before us children because she knows us has been brought up to be trusty. How does they find out about him? Martha was in fine trouble the last time she came home. She said they had heard him fretting and that was asking questions and she didn't know what to say. Mary told him her story about the midnight wuthering of the wind which had wakened her and about the faint far-off sounds of the complaining voice which had led her down the dark corridors with her candle. It ended with her opening of the door and of dimly lighted room with the carven four-posted bed in the corner. When she described the small ivory white face and the strange black-rimmed eyes, Dickens shook his head. 
"'Them's just like his mother's eyes, only hers was always laughing, they say,' he said. "'They say as Mr. Craven can't bear to see him when he's awake, "'and it's because his eyes is so like his mother's, "'and yet look so different in his miserable bit of a face.' "'Do you think he wants to die?' whispered Mary. "'Nobody wishes he'd never been born. "'Mother says that there's the worst thing on earth for a child. "'Them as is not wanted scarce ever thrives. "'Mester Craven, he'd buy anything as money could buy for the poor lad, "'but he'd like to forget as he's on earth. "'For one thing is afraid he'll look at him some day and find his growed hunchback. "'Colin's so afraid of it himself that he won't sit up,' said Mary. "'He says he's always thinking that if he should feel a lump coming "'he should go crazy and scream himself to death.' "'Eh, he oughtn't to lie there thinking things like that,' said Dickon. "'No lad could get well as thought them sort of things.' The fox was lying on the grass close by him, looking up to ask for a pat now and then, and Dickon bent down and rubbed his neck softly, and thought a few minutes in silence. Presently he lifted his head and looked round the garden. "'When we first got in here,' he said, "'it seemed like everything was grey. Look round now and tell me if that doesn't see a difference.' Mary looked and caught her breath a little. "'Why?' she cried. "'The grey wall is changing. "'It's as if a green mist were creeping over it. "'It's almost like a green gauze rail.' "'Aye,' said Dickon. "'It'll be greener and greener till the grey's all gone. "'Can they guess what I was thinking?' "'I know it was something nice,' said Mary eagerly. "'I believe it was something about Colin. "'I was thinking that if he was out here "'he wouldn't be watching for lumps to grow on his back. "'He'd be watching for buds to break on the rose-bushes, "'and he'd likely be healthier,' explained Dickon. "'I was wondering if us could ever get him in the humour "'to come out here and lie under the trees in his carriage. "'I've been wondering that myself. "'I've thought of it almost every time I've talked to him,' said Mary. "'I've wondered if he could keep a secret, "'and I've wondered if we could bring him here without anyone seeing us. "'I thought perhaps you could push his carriage.' The doctor said he must have fresh air, and if he wants us to take him out, no one dare disobey him. He won't go out for other people, and perhaps they will be glad if he will go out with us. He could order the gardeners to keep away so they wouldn't find out. Dickon was thinking very hard as he scratched Captain's back. It'd be good for him, I'll warrant, he said. Us had not be thinking, he'd better never have been born. Us had be two children watching the garden grow, and he'd be another, two lads and little lass just looking at the springtime. I warrant it'd be better than doctor's stuff. He's been lying in his room so long, and he's always been so afraid of his back, this has made him queer, said Mary. He knows a good many things of books, but he doesn't know anything else. He says he has been too ill to notice things, and he hates going out of doors, and hates gardens and gardeners, but he likes to hear about his, this garden, because it is a secret. I daren't tell him much, but he says he wanted to see it. I shall have him out here some time for sure, said Dickon. I could push his carriage well enough. Has I noticed how the robin and his mate have been working while we've been sitting here? Look at him perched on that branch, wondering where it'd be best to put that twig he's got in his beak. He made one of his low whistling calls, and the robin turned his head and looked at him inquiringly, still holding his twig. Dickon spoke to him as Ben Weatherstaff did, but Dickon's tone was one of friendly advice. Wherever the puts it, he said, it'll be all right. They knew how to blow the nest before they came out of the egg. Get on with it, lad. There's got no time to lose. Oh, I do like to hear you talk to him, Mary said, laughing delightedly. Ben Weatherstaff scolds him and makes fun of him, and he hops about and looks as if he understood every word, and I know he likes it. Ben Weatherstaff says he is so conceited he would rather have stones thrown at him than not be noticed. 
Dick and laughed too and went on talking. "'Thou knows us won't trouble thee,' he said to the robin. "'Us is near being wild things ourselves. Us is nest building too, bless thee. Look out there doesn't tell on us.' And though the robin did not answer, because his beak was occupied, Mary knew that when he flew away with his twig his own corner of the garden, the darkness of his dew-bright eye meant that he would not tell their secret for the world. End of chapter 15 Recording by Ashley Jane Chapter 16 of The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 I won't, said Mary. They found a great deal to do that morning, and Mary was late in returning to the house, and was also in such a hurry to get back to her work that she quite forgot Colin until the last moment. "'Tell Colin that I can't come and see him yet,' she said to Martha. "'I'm very busy in the garden.' Martha looked rather frightened. "'Eh, Miss Mary,' she said, it "'may put him all out of humour when I tell him that.' But Mary was not as afraid of him as other persons were, and she was not a self-sacrificing person. "'I can't stay,' she answered. "'Dickens waiting for me,' and she ran away. The afternoon was even lovelier and busier than the morning had been. Already nearly all the weeds were cleared out of the garden, and most of the roses and trees had been pruned or dug out. Dickon had brought a spade of his own, and he had taught Mary to use all her tools, so that by this time it was plain that though the lovely wild place was not likely to become a gardener's garden, it would be a wilderness of growing things before the springtime was over. "'There'll be apple-blossoms and cherry-blossoms overhead,' Dickon said, working away with all his might. "'And there'll be peach and plum-trees in bloom against the walls, and the grass'll be a carpet of flowers.' The little fox and the rook were as happy and busy as they were, and the robin and his mate flew backward and forward like tiny streaks of lightning. Sometimes the rook flapped his black wings and soared away over the tree-tops in the park. Each time he came back and perched near Dickon, and cawed several times as if he were relating his adventures, and Dickon talked to him just as he had talked to the robin. Once, when Dickon was so busy that he did not answer him at first, Soot flew onto his shoulders and gently tweaked his ear with his large beak. When Mary wanted to rest a little, Dickon sat down with her under a tree, and once he took his pipe out of his pocket and played the soft, strange little notes, and two squirrels appeared on the wall and looked and listened. "'There's a good bit stronger than there was,' Dickon said, looking at her as she was digging. "'There's beginning to look different, for sure.' Mary was glowing with exercise and good spirits. "'I'm getting fatter and fatter every day,' she said quite exultantly. "'Mrs. Medlock will have to get me some bigger dresses. Martha says my hair is growing thicker. It isn't so flat and stringy.' The sun was beginning to set, and sending deep-coloured rays slanting under the trees when they parted. "'It'll be fine tomorrow, said Dickon. "'It'll be at work by sunshine.' "'So will I,' said Mary. She ran back to the house as quickly as her feet would carry her. She wanted to tell Colin about Dickon's fox club and the rook and about what the springtime had been doing. She felt sure he would like to hear, so it was not very pleasant when she opened the door of her room to see Martha standing waiting for her with a doleful face. "'What is the matter?' she asked. "'What did Colin say when you told him I couldn't come?' "'Eh,' said Martha, "'I wish they'd gone. "'He was nigh going into one of his tantrums. "'There's been a nice to-do all afternoon to keep him quiet. "'He would watch the clock all the time.' "'Mary's lips pinched themselves together. 
She was no more used to considering other people than Colin was, and she saw no reason why an ill-tempered boy should interfere with the things she liked best. She knew nothing about the pitifulness of people who had been ill and nervous, and who did not know that they could control their tempers, and need not make their people ill and nervous too. When she had had a headache in India, she had done her best to see that everybody else also had a headache or something quite as bad, and she felt she was quite right. But of course now she felt that Colin was quite wrong. He was not on his sofa when she went into his room. He was lying flat on his back, and he did not turn his head toward her as she came in. This was a bad beginning, and Mary marched up to him with a stiff manner. "'Why didn't you get up?' she said. "'I did get up this morning when I thought you were coming,' he answered, without looking at her. "'I made them put me back in bed this afternoon. My back ached and my head ached, and I was tired. Why didn't you come?' "'I was working in the garden with Dickon,' said Mary. Colin frowned and condescended to look at her. "'I won't let that boy come here if you go and stay with him instead of coming to talk to me,' he said. Mary flew into a fine passion. She could fly into a passion without making a noise. She just grew sour and obstinate and did not care what happened. "'If you send Dickon away, I'll never come into this room again,' she retorted. "'You'll have to come if I want you to,' said Colin. "'I won't,' said Mary. "'I'll make you,' said Colin. "'They shall drag you in.' "'Shall they, Mr. Rajah?' said Mary fiercely. "'They may drag me in, but they can't make me talk when they get me here. I'll sit and clench my teeth and never tell you one thing. I won't even look at you. I'll stare at the floor.' They were a nice, agreeable pair as they glared at each other. If they had been two little street boys, they would have sprung at each other and had a rough-and-tumble fright. As it was, they did the next thing to it. "'You are a selfish thing,' said Colin. "'What are you?' said Mary. "'Selfish people always say that. Any one is selfish who doesn't do what they want. You're more selfish than I am. You're the most selfish boy I ever saw.' "'I'm not,' snapped Colin. "'I'm not as selfish as your fine Dickon. He keeps you playing in the dirt when he knows I'm all by myself. He's selfish, if you like.' Mary's eyes flashed fire. "'He's nicer than any other boy that ever lived,' she said. "'He's—he's he's like an angel.' It might sound rather silly to say that, but she did not care. "'A nice angel,' Colin sneered ferociously. "'He's a common cottage boy off the moor.' "'He's better than a common rajah,' retorted Mary. "'He's a thousand times better.' Because she was the stronger of the two, she was beginning to get the better of him. The truth was that he had never had a fight with anyone like himself in his life, and upon the whole it was rather good for him, though neither he nor Mary knew anything about that. He turned his head on his pillow and shut his eyes, and a big tear was squeezed out and ran down his cheek. He was beginning to feel pathetic and sorry for himself, not for anyone else. "'I'm not as selfish as you, because I'm always ill, and I'm sure there is a lump coming on my back,' he said. "'And I'm going to die besides.' "'You're not,' contradicted Mary unsympathetically. He opened his eyes quite wide with indignation. He had never heard such a thing said before. He was at once furious and slightly pleased if a person could be both at one time. "'I'm not,' he cried. "'I am. You know I am. Everybody says so.' "'I don't believe it,' said Mary sourly. "'You just say that to make people sorry. I believe you're proud of it. I don't believe it. If you were a nice boy it might be true. But you're too nasty.' In spite of his invalid back, Colin sat up in bed in quite a healthy rage. "'Get out of the room!' he shouted, and he caught hold of his pillow and threw it out her. He was not strong enough to throw it far, and it only fell at her feet, but Mary's face looked as pinched as a nutcracker. "'I'm going,' 
she said, and I won't come back. She walked to the door, and when she reached it, she turned round and spoke again. I was going to tell you all sorts of nice things, she said. Dickon brought this fox and his brook, and I was going to tell you all about them. Now I won't tell you a single thing. She marched out of the door and closed it behind her, and there, to her great astonishment, she found the trained nurse standing as if she had been listening, and, more amazing still, she was laughing. She was a big, handsome young woman who ought not to have been a trained nurse at all, as she could not bear invalids, and she was always making excuses to leave Colin to Martha or anyone else who would take her place. Mary had never liked her, and she simply stood and gazed up at her as she stood giggling into her handkerchief. "'What are you laughing at?' she asked her. "'At you two young ones,' said the nurse. "'It's the best thing that could happen to the sickly pampered thing to have someone stand up to him that's as spoiled as himself.' And she laughed into her handkerchief again. "'If he had had a young vixen of a sister to fight with, it would have been the saving of him.' "'Is he going to die?' "'I don't know, and I don't care.' said the nurse. Hysterics and temper are half what ails him. "'What are hysterics?' asked Mary. "'You'll find out if you're working him to a tantrum after this. But at any rate you've given him something to have hysterics about, and I'm glad of it.' Mary went back to her room, not feeling at all as if she had felt she had come in from the garden. She was cross and disappointed, but not at all sorry for Colin. She had looked forward to telling him a great many things, and she had meant to try to make up her mind whether it would be safe to trust him with the great secret. She had been beginning to think it would be, but now she changed her mind entirely. She would never tell him, and he could stay in his room and never get any fresh air and die if he liked. It would serve him right. She felt so sour and unrelenting that for a few minutes she almost forgot about Dickon and the green veil creeping over the world and the soft wind blowing down from the moor. Martha was waiting for her, and the trouble in her face had been temporarily replaced by interest and curiosity. There was a wooden box on the table, and its cover had been removed and revealed that it was full of neat packages. "'Mr. Craven sent it to you,' said Martha. "'It looks as if it had picture books in it.' Mary remembered what he had asked her the day she had gone to his room. "'Do you want anything? Dolls? Toys? Books?' She opened the package, wondering if he had sent a doll, and also wondered what she should do with it if he had. But he had not sent one. There were several beautiful books, such as Colin had, and two of them were about gardens and were full of pictures. There were two or three games, and there was a beautiful little writing-case, with a gold monogram on it and a gold pen and inkstand. Everything was so nice that her pleasure began to crowd her anger out of her mind. She had not expected him to remember her at all, and her hard little heart grew quite warm. "'I can write better than I can print,' she said, "'and the first thing I shall write with that pen will be a letter to tell him I am much obliged.' If she had been friends with Colin, she would have run to show him her presence at once, and they would have looked at the pictures and read some of the gardening books, and perhaps tried playing the games, and he would have enjoyed himself so much he would never once have thought he was going to die, or have put his hand on his spine to see if there was a lump coming. He had a way of doing that which she could not bear gave her an uncomfortable frightened feeling, because he always looked so frightened himself. He said that if he felt even quite a lump some day, he should know his hunch had begun to grow. Something he had heard Mrs. Medlock whispering to the nurse had given him the idea, and he had thought over it in secret until it had quite firmly fixed in his mind. Mrs. Medlock had said his father's back had begun to show its crookedness in that way when he was a child. He had never told anyone but Mary that most of his tantrums, as they called them, grew out of his hysterical hidden fear. Mary had been sorry for him when he had told her. 
"'He always began to think about it when he was cross or tired,' she said to herself. "'And he has been cross to-day. Perhaps—perhaps he has been thinking about it all afternoon.' She stood still looking at the carpet and thinking. "'I said I would never go back again,' she hesitated, knitting her brows. "'But perhaps—just perhaps I will go and see—if he wants me—in the morning. Perhaps he'll try to throw his pillow at me again. But—I think—I'll go.' End of chapter 16 Recording by Ashley Jane Chapter 17 of The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17 A Tantrum She had got up very early in the morning, and had worked hard in the garden, and she was tired and sleepy, so as soon as Martha had brought her supper, and she had eaten it, she was glad to go to bed. As she laid her head on the pillow, she murmured to herself, "'I'll go out before breakfast and work with Dickon, and then afterward, I believe, I'll go to see him.' She thought it was the middle of the night when she was awakened by such dreadful sounds that she jumped out of bed in an instant. What was it? What was it? The next minute she felt quite sure she knew. Doors were opened and shut, and there were hurrying feet in the corridors, and someone was crying and screaming, at the same time screaming and crying in a horrible way. "'It's Colin,' she said. "'He's having one of those tantrums in the nurse called hysterics. How awful it sounds!' As she listened to the sobbing scream, she did not wonder that people were so frightened that they gave him his own way in everything rather than hear them. She put her hands over her ears and felt sick and shivering. "'I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do,' she kept saying. "'I can't bear it.' Once she wondered if he would stop if she dared to go to him, and then she remembered how he had driven her out of the room, and thought that perhaps the sight of her might make him worse. Even when she pressed her hands more tightly over her ears, she could not keep the awful sounds out. She hated them so, and she was terrified by them, that suddenly they began to make her angry, and she felt as if she should like to fly into a tantrum herself, and frighten him as he was frightening her. She was not used to anyone's tempers but her own. She took her hands from her ears, and sprang up and stamped her foot. "'He ought to be stopped! Somebody ought to make him stop! Somebody ought to beat him!' she cried out. Just then she heard feet almost running down the corridor, and her door opened, and the nurse came in. She was not laughing now by any means. She even looked rather pale. "'He's worked himself into hysterics,' she said in a great hurry. "'He'll do himself harm. No one can do anything with him. You come and try, like a good child. He likes you.' "'He turned me out of the room this morning,' said Mary, stamping her foot with excitement. The stamp rather pleased the nurse. The truth was that she had been afraid she might find Mary crying and hiding her head under the bedclothes. "'That's right,' she said. "'You're in the right humour. You go and scold him. Give him something new to think of. Do go, child, as quick as ever you can.' It was not until afterward that Mary realised that the funny thing had been funny as well as dreadful. It was funny that all the grown-up people were so frightened that they came to a little girl just because they guessed she was almost as bad as Colin himself. She flew along the corridor, and the nearer she got to the screams, the higher the temper mounted. She felt quite wicked by the time she reached the door. She slapped it open with her hand and ran across the room to the four-poster bed. "'You stop!' 
she almost shouted. You stop! I hate you! Everybody hates you! I wish everybody would run out of the house and let you scream yourself to death! You will scream yourself to death in a minute, and I wish you would! A nice sympathetic child could neither have said nor thought such things, but it just happened that the shock of hearing them was the best possible thing for this hysterical boy, whom no one had even dared to restrain or contradict. He had been lying on his face, beating his pillow with his hands, and he actually almost jumped around. He turned so quickly at the sound of the furious little voice. His face looked dreadful, white and red and swollen, and he was gasping and choking, but savage little Mary did not care an atom. "'If you scream another scream,' she said, "'I'll scream too, and I can scream louder than you can, and I'll frighten you. I'll frighten you.' He actually had stopped screaming before she had startled him so. The scream which had been coming almost choked him. The tears were streaming down his face, and he shook all over. "'I can't stop,' he gasped and sobbed. "'I can't. I can't.' "'You can?' shouted Mary. "'Half that ails you is hysterics and temper. Just hysterics. Hysterics! Hysterics! And she stamped each time she said it. I felt the lump. I felt it, choked out Colin. I knew I should. I shall have a hunch on my back, and then I shall die. And he began to writhe again, and turned on his face, and sobbed and wailed, but he didn't scream. You didn't feel a lump, contradicted Mary fiercely. If you did, it was only a hysterical lump. Hysterics make lumps. There's nothing the matter with your horrid back. Nothing but hysterics. Turn over and let me look at it. She liked the word hysterics, and felt somehow as if it had an effect on him. He was probably like herself, and had never heard it before. Nurse, she commanded, come here and show me his back this minute. The nurse, Mrs. Medlock, and Martha had been standing huddled together near the door, staring at her, their mouths half open. All three had gasped with fright more than once. The nurse came forward as if she were half afraid. Colin was heaving with great breathless sobs. Perhaps he—he he won't let me she hesitated in a low voice. Colin heard her, however, and he gasped out between two sobs, "'Sh—show her! Sh—she'll see them!' It was a poor thin back to look at when it was bared. Every rib could be counted in every joint of the spine, though Mistress Mary did not count them as she bent over and examined them with a solemn, savage little face. She looked so sour and old-fashioned that the nurse turned her head aside to hide the twitching of her mouth. There was just a minute's silence, for even Colin tried to hold his breath while Mary looked up and down his spine, and down and up, as intently as she had been the great doctor from London. "'There's not a single lump there,' she said at last. "'There's not a lump as big as a pin, except backbone lumps. "'You can only feel them because you're thin. "'I've got backbone lumps myself, and they used to stick out as much as yours do until I began to get fatter, and I'm not fat enough yet to hide them.' There's not a lump as big as a pin. If you ever say there is again, I shall laugh. No one but Colin himself knew what effect those crossly spoken childish words had on him. If he had ever had any one talk to him about his secret terrors, if he had ever dared to let himself ask questions, if he had had childish companions and had not lain on his back in the huge closed house, breathing an atmosphere heavy with the fears of people who were most of them ignorant and tired of him, he would have found out that most of his fright and illness was created by himself. But he had lain and thought of himself and his aches and weariness for hours and days and months and years, and now that an angry, unsympathetic little girl insisted obstinately that he was not as ill as he thought he was, he actually felt as if she might be speaking the truth. 
"'I didn't know,' ventured the nurse, "'that he thought he had a lump on his spine. "'His back is weak because he won't try to sit up. "'I could have told him there was no lump there.' "'Colin gulped and turned his face a little to look at her. C "'Could you?' he said pathetically. "'Yes, sir.' "'There!' said Mary, and she gulped too. Colin turned on his face again, and but for his long-drawn, broken breaths, which were the dying down of his storm of sobbing, he lay still for a minute, though great tears streamed down his face and wet the pillow. Actually the tears meant that a curious great relief had come to him. Presently he turned around and looked at the nurse again, and strangely enough he was not like a rajah at all as he spoke to her. "'Do you think I could live to grow up?' he said. The nurse was neither clever nor soft-hearted, but she could repeat some of the London doctor's words. "'You probably will if you do what you were told to do, and not give way to your temper, and stay out a great deal in the fresh air.' Colin's tantrum had passed, and he was weak and worn out with crying, and this perhaps made him feel gentle. He put out his hand a little toward Mary, and I am glad to say that her own tantrum having passed, she was softened too and met him half-way with her hand, so that it was sort of a making up. Ah. "'I'll go out with you, Mary,' he said. "'I shan't take fresh air if we can find—' He remembered just in time to stop himself from saying, "'If we can find the secret garden.' And he ended, "'I shall like to go out with you if Dickon will come and push my chair. I do so want to see Dickon and the fox and the crow.' The nurse remade the tumble bed and shook and straightened the pillows. Then she made Colin a cup of beef tea and gave a cup to Mary, who really was very glad to get it after her excitement. Mrs. Medlock and Martha gladly slipped away, and after everything was neat and calm and in order, the nurse looked as if she would very gladly slip away also. She was a healthy young woman who resented being robbed of her sleep, and she yawned quite openly as she looked at Mary, who had pushed her big footstool close to the four-posted bed and was holding Colin's hand. "'You must go back and get your sleep out,' she said. "'He'll drop off after a while, if he's not too upset. Then I'll lie down myself in the next room.' "'Would you like me to sing you that song I learned from my ayah?' Mary whispered to Colin. His hand pulled hers gently, and he turned his tired eyes on her appealingly. "'Oh, yes,' he answered. "'It's such a soft song. I shall go to sleep in a minute.' "'I will put him to sleep,' Mary said to the yawning nurse. "'You can go if you like.' "'Well,' said the nurse, with an attempt at reluctance, "'if he doesn't go to sleep in half an hour, you must call me.' "'Very well,' answered Mary.' The nurse was out of the room in a minute, and as soon as she was gone, Colin pulled Mary's hand again. "'I almost told,' he said, "'but I stopped myself in time. I won't talk, and I'll go to sleep. But you said you had a whole lot of nice things to tell me. Have you—do you think you have found out anything at all about the way into the secret garden?' Mary looked at his poor little tired face and swollen eyes, and her heart relented. "'Yes,' she answered. "'I think I have.' and if you will go to sleep, I will tell you to-morrow. His hand quite trembled. Oh, Mary, he said, oh, Mary, if I could get into it, I think I should live to grow up. Do you suppose that instead of singing the Aya song, you could just tell me as softly as you did that first day, what you imagine it looks like inside? I am sure it will make me go to sleep. Yes, answered Mary. Shut your eyes. He closed his eyes and lay quite still, and she held his hand and began to speak very slowly and in a very low voice. I think it has been left alone so long, that it has grown all into a lovely tangle. 
I think the roses have climbed and climbed and climbed, until they hang from the branches and walls and creep over the ground, almost like a strange grey mist. Some of them have died, but many are alive, and when the summer comes there will be curtains and fountains of roses. I think the ground is full of daffodils and snowdrops and lilies and irises working their way out of the dark. Now the spring has begun. Perhaps. Perhaps. The soft drone of her voice was making him stiller and stiller, and she saw it and went on. Perhaps they are coming up through the grass. Perhaps there are clusters of purple crocuses and gold ones, even now. Perhaps the leaves are beginning to break out and uncurl. And perhaps the grey is changing, and a green gauze veil is creeping and creeping over everything, and the birds are coming to look at it, because it is so safe and still. And perhaps, 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 very softly and slowly indeed, the robin has found a mate and is building a nest. And Colin was asleep. End of chapter 17 Recording by Ashley Jane Chapter 18 of The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18. Then may not waste no time. Of course Mary did not waken early the next morning. She slept late because she was tired, and when Martha brought her breakfast she told her that though Colin was quite quiet, he was ill and feverish as he always was after he had worn himself out with a fit of crying. Mary ate her breakfast slowly as she listened. He says he wishes they would please go and see him as soon as the can, Martha said. It's queer what a fancy you took to thee. Dad did give it him last night for sure, didn't thou? Nobody else would have dared to do it. Eh, poor lad, he's been spoilt till salt won't save him. Mother says as the two worst things as can happen to a child is never to have his own way, or always to have it. She doesn't know which is the worst. Thou was in a fine temper thyself, too. But he says to me when I went into his room, Please ask Miss Mary if she'll come and talk to me. Think of him saying please. Will you go, miss? I'll run and see Dickon first, said Mary. No, I'll go and see Colin first and tell him. I know what I'll tell him, with a sudden inspiration. She had her hat on when she appeared in Colin's room, and for a second he looked disappointed. He was in bed, his face was pitifully white, and there were dark circles round his eyes. I'm glad you came, he said. My head aches and I ache all over because I'm so tired. Are you going somewhere? Mary went and leaned against his bed. "'I won't be long,' she said. "'I'm going to Dickon, but I'll come back. "'Colin, it's, it's something about the garden.' His whole face brightened, and a little colour came into it. "'Oh, is it?' he cried out. "'I dreamed about it all night. I heard you say something about grey changing into green, and I dreamed I was standing in a place all filled with trembling little green leaves. And there were birds on nests everywhere, and they looked so soft and still.' I'll lie and think about it until you come back. In five minutes Mary was with Dickon in their garden. The fox and the crow were with him again, and this time he had brought two tame squirrels. I came over on the pony this morning, he said. Eh, he's a good little chap. Jump is. I brought these two in my pockets. This here one's called Nut, and this here other one's called Shell. When he said nut, one squirrel leaped on to his right shoulder, and when he said shell, the other one leaped on to his left shoulder. When they sat down on the grass with Captain curled at their feet, Soot solemnly listened on a tree, and nut and shell nosing about close to them. 
It seemed to Mary that it would be scarcely bearable to leave such delightfulness, but when she began to tell her story, somehow the look in Dickens' funny face gradually changed her mind. She could see he felt sorrier for Colin than she did. He looked up at the sky and all about him. "'Just listen to them birds. The world seems full of em all whistling and piping,' he said. "'Look at em darting about, and harken at em calling to each other. Come springtime seems like as if all the world's calling. The leaves in curling so you can see em, and my world, the nice smells there is about.' Sniffing with his happy turned-up nose, and that poor lad lying shut up and seeing so little that he gets to thinking of things as set him screaming, "'Eh, my, we mun get him out of here. We mun get him watching and listening and sniffing up there, and get him just soaked through with sunshine, and we mun not lose no time about it.' When he was very much interested he often spoke quite broad Yorkshire, though at other times he tried to modify his dialect so that Mary could better understand. But she loved his broad Yorkshire, and had in fact been trying to learn to speak it herself, so she spoke a little now. "'Aye, that we mun,' she said, which meant, "'Yes, indeed, we must.' "'I'll tell thee what us'll do first, she proceeded, and Dickon grinned, and because when the little wench tried to twist her tongue into speaking Yorkshire, it amused him very much. "'He took a greatly fancy to thee. He wants to see thee, and he wants to see Sutton Captain.' When I go back to the house to talk to him, I'll ax him if they cannot come and see him to-morrow morning, and bring that creature with thee, and then, in a bit, when there's more leaves out, and happen a bud or two, we'll get him to come out, and thou shalt push him in his chair, and we'll bring him here and show him everything. When she stopped she was quite proud of herself. She had never made a long speech in Yorkshire before, and she had remembered very well. "'Then mun talk a bit of Yorkshire like that to Mester Colin,' Dickon chuckled. "'That'll make him laugh, and there's not as good for ill folk as laughing. "'Mother says she believes there's half-hour goods laugh every morning, "'a cure of chap as was making ready for typhus fever.' "'I'm going to talk Yorkshire to him this very day,' said Mary, chuckling to herself. The garden had reached the time when every day and every night it seemed as if magicians were passing through it, drawing loveliness out of the earth, and the bows with wands. It was hard to go away and leave it all, particularly as Nut had actually crept under her dress, and Shell had scrambled down the trunk of the apple-tree they sat under, and stayed there looking at her with inquiring eyes. But she went back to the house, and when she sat down close to Colin's bed, he began to sniff as Dickon did, though not in such an experienced way. "'You smell like flowers and, and fresh things,' he cried out quite joyously. "'What is it you smell of? It's cool and warm and sweet all at the same time.' "'It's the wind from the moor,' said Mary. "'It comes a-sitting on the grass under a tree with Dickon, and with Captain and Soot and Nut and Shell. It's the springtime, and out of doors and sunshine has smells so gravely.' She said it as broadly as she could, and you do not know how broadly Yorkshire sounds until you have heard someone speak it. Colin began to laugh. "'What are you doing?' he said. "'I never heard you talk like that before. How funny it sounds!' "'I'm giving thee a bit of Yorkshire,' answered Mary triumphantly. "'I cannot talk as greatly as Dickon and Martha can, but thou sees I can shape a bit, doesn't thou? Understand a bit of Yorkshire when thou hears it. And thou art a Yorkshire lad thyself, bred and born. Eh, uh, I wonder thou art not ashamed of thy face.' 
and then she began to laugh too and they both laughed until they could not stop themselves and they laughed until the room echoed and mrs medlock opening the door to come in drew back into the corridor and stood listening amazed well upon my word she said speaking rather broad yorkshire herself because there was no one to hear her and she was so astonished whoever heard the like whoever on earth would have thought it there was so much to talk about it seemed as if Colin could never hear enough of Dickon and Captain and Soot and Nut and Shell and the pony whose name was Jump. Mary had run around into the wood with Dickon to see Jump. He was a tiny little shaggy moor pony with thick locks hanging over his eyes and with a pretty face and a nuzzling velvet nose. He was rather thin with living on moor grass, but he was as tough and wiry as if the muscles in his little legs had been made of steel springs. He had lifted his head and whinnied softly the moment he saw Dickon and he had trotted up to him and put his head across his shoulder, and then Dickon had talked into his ears, and Jumper talked back in odd little whinnies and puffs and snorts. Dickon had made him give Mary his small front tooth and kiss her on the cheek with his velvet muscle. "'Does he really understand everything Dickon says?' Colin asked. "'It seems as if he does,' answered Mary. "'Dickon says anything will understand if you're friends with it for sure, but you have to be friends for sure.' Colin lay quiet a little while, and his strange grey eyes seemed to be staring at the wall, but Mary saw he was thinking. "'I wish I was friends with things,' he said at last. "'Tom not. I never had anything to be friends with, and I can't bear people.' "'Can't you bear me?' asked Mary. "'Yes, I can,' he answered. "'It's funny, but I even like you.' "'Ben Weatherstaff said I was like him,' said Mary. "'He said he'd warrant we'd both got the same nasty tempers. I think you were like him, too.' We're all three alike, you and I and Ben Weatherstaff. He says we were neither of us much to look at, and we were as sour as we looked. But I don't feel as sour as I used to before I knew the robin and Dickon. Did you feel as if you hated people? Yes, answered Mary, without any affectation. I should have detested you if I had seen you before I saw the robin and Dickon. Colin put out his thin hand and touched her. Mary, he said. I wish I hadn't said what I said about sending Dickon away. I hated you when you said he was like an angel, and I laughed at you, but—but but perhaps he is. Well, it was rather funny to say it, she admitted frankly, because his nose does turn up, and he has a big mouth, and his clothes have patches all over them, and he talks broad Yorkshire. But if an angel did come to Yorkshire and live on the moor, if there was a Yorkshire angel, I believe he'd understand the green things and know how to make them grow, and he would know how to talk to the wild creatures as Dickon does, and they'd know he was friends for sure. I shouldn't mind Dickon looking at me, said Colin. I want to see him. I'm glad you said that, answered Mary. Because, because, quite suddenly it came into her mind that this was the minute to tell him. Colin knew something was coming. Because what? he cried eagerly. Mary was so anxious that she got up from her stool and came to him and caught hold of both his hands. Can I trust you? I trusted Dickon because Burge trusted him. Can I trust you? For sure. For sure, she implored. Her face was so solemn that he almost whispered his answer. Yes. Yes. Well, Dickon will come to see you tomorrow morning, and he'll bring his creatures with him. Oh, oh, cried Colin in delight. But that's not all. Mary went on, almost pale with solemn excitement. The rest is better. There is a door into the garden. I found it. It is under the ivy on the wall. If he had been a strong, healthy boy, Colin probably would have shouted, Hurrah! 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 
but he was weak and rather hysterical. His eyes grew bigger and bigger, and he gasped for breath. "'Oh, Mary!' he cried out with a half-sob. "'Shall I see it? Shall I get to see it? Shall I live to get into it?' And he clutched her hands and dragged her toward him. "'Of course you shall see it!' snapped Mary indignantly. "'Of course you'll live to get into it. Don't be silly!' and she was so unhysterical and natural and childish that she brought him to his senses, and he began to laugh at himself, and a few minutes afterward she was sitting on her stool again, telling him not what she imagined the secret garden to be like, but what it really was, and Colin's aches and tiredness were forgotten, and he was listening enraptured. "'It's just what you thought it would be,' he said at last. "'It sounds as if you had really seen it. You know I said that when you told me first. Mary hesitated about two minutes, and then boldly spoke the truth. "'I had seen it, and I had been in it,' she said. "'I found the key and got in weeks ago. But I daren't tell you. I daren't, because I was so afraid I couldn't trust you, for sure.'" End of chapter 18 Recording by Ashley Jane Chapter 19 of The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19. It Has Come Of course Dr. Craven had been sent for the morning after Colin had had his tantrum. He was always sent for at once when such a thing occurred, and he always found when he arrived a white shaken boy lying on his bed, sulky and still so hysterical that he was ready to break into fresh sobbing at the least word. In fact, Dr. Craven dreaded and detested the difficulties of these visits. On this occasion he was away from Misselthwaite Manor until afternoon. "'How is he?' he asked Mrs. Medlock, rather irritably, when he arrived. "'He'll break a blood vessel in one of those fits some day. The boy's half insane with hysteria and self-indulgence.' "'Well, sir,' answered Mrs. Medlock, "'you'll scarcely believe your eyes when you see him. That plain sour-faced child that's almost as bad as himself has just bewitched him. How she's done it there's no telling.' The Lord knows she's nothing to look at, and you scarcely ever hear her speak, but she did what none of us dare do. She flew at him like a little cat last night, and stamped her feet, and ordered him to stop screaming, and somehow she startled him so that he actually did stop, and this afternoon, well, just come up and see, sir, it's past crediting. The scene which Dr. Craven beheld when he entered his patient's room was indeed rather astonishing to him. As Mrs. Medlock opened the door, he heard laughing and chattering. Colin was on his sofa in his dressing-gown, and he was sitting up quite straight, looking at a picture in one of the garden books, and talking to the plain child, who at that moment could scarcely be called a plain child at all, because her face was so glowing with enjoyment. "'Those long spies are blue ones. We'll have a lot of those,' Colin was announcing. "'They're called delphiniums.' "'Dickens says they're larkspurs made big and grand,' cried Mistress Mary. "'There are clumps there already.' Then they saw Dr. Craven and stopped. Mary became quite still, and Colin looked fretful. "'I'm sorry to hear you were ill last night, my boy,' Dr. Craven said a trifle nervously. He was a rather nervous man. "'I'm better now, much better,' Colin answered, rather like a rajah. "'I'm going out of my chair in a day or two, if it is fine. I want some fresh air.' Dr. Craven sat down by him. Dr. Craven sat down by him and felt his pulse and looked at him curiously. "'It must be a very fine day,' he said, "'and you must be very careful not to tire yourself.' "'Fresh air won't tire me,' said the young Rajah. 
as there had been occasions when the same young gentleman had shrieked aloud with rage and had insisted that fresh air would give him cold and kill him it is not to be wondered that his doctor felt somewhat startled i thought you did not like fresh air he said i don't mind by myself replied the rajah but my cousin is going out with me and the nurse of course suggested dr craven no i will not have the nurse so magnificently that mary could not help remembering how the young native prince had looked with his diamonds and emeralds and pearls stuck all over him and the great rubies on a small dark hand he had waved to command his servants to approach with salaams and receive his orders my cousin knows how to take care of me i am always better when she is with me she made me better last night a very strong boy i know will push my carriage dr craven felt rather alarmed if this tiresome hysterical boy should chance to get well he himself would lose all chance of inheriting misselthwaite but he was not an unscrupulous man though he was a weak one and he did not intend to let him run into actual danger he must be a strong boy and a steady boy he said and i must know something about him who is he what is his name it's dickon mary spoke up suddenly she felt somehow that everybody who knew the moor must know dickon and she was right too she saw that in a moment dr craven's serious face relaxed into a relieved smile oh dickon he said if it is dickon you will be safe enough he's as strong as a moor pony is dickon and his trusty said mary he's the trustiest lad in yorkshire she had been talking yorkshire to colin and she had forgotten herself did dickon teach you that asked dr craven laughing outright i'm learning it as if it was french said mary rather coldly it's like a native dialect in india very clever people try to learn them i like it and so does colin well well he said if it amuses you perhaps it won't do you any harm did you take your bromide last night colin no colin answered i wouldn't take it at first and after mary made me quiet she talked me to sleep in a low voice about the spring creeping into a garden that sounds soothing said dr craven more perplexed than ever and glancing sideways at mistress mary sitting on her stool and looking down silently at the carpet you are evidently better but you must remember i don't want to remember interrupted the rajah appearing again when i lie by myself and remember i begin to have pains everywhere and i think of things that make me begin to scream because i hate them so if there's a doctor anywhere who could make you forget you were ill instead of remembering it i would have have him brought here and he waved a thin hand which ought really to have been covered with royal signet rings made of rubies it is because my cousin makes me forget that she makes me better dr craven had never made such a short stay after a tantrum usually he was obliged to remain a very long time and do a great many things this afternoon he did not give any medicine or leave any new orders and he was spared any disagreeable scenes when he went downstairs he looked very thoughtful and when he talked to mrs medlock in the library she felt that he was a much puzzled man well sir she ventured could you have believed it it is certainly a new state of affairs said the doctor and there's no denying it is better than the old one i believe susan sowerby is right i do that said mrs medlock i stopped in her cottage on my way to thwaite yesterday and had a bit of a talk with her and she says to me well sarah ann she mayn't be a good child and she mayn't be a pretty one but she's a child and children need children we went to school together susan sowerby and me she's the best sick nurse i know said dr craven when i find her in a cottage i know the chances are that i shall save my patient mrs medlock smiled she was fond of susan sowerby 
She's got away with her, has Susan, she went on quite volubly. I've been thinking all morning of one thing she said yesterday. She says, once when I was giving the children a bit of a preach after they had been fighting, I says to them all, when I was at school my geography told us the world was shaped like an orange, and I found out before I was ten that the whole orange doesn't belong to nobody. No one owns more than his bit of a quarter, and there's times it seems like there's not enough quarters to go around. But don't you, none of you, think as you own the whole orange, or you'll find out you're mistaken, and you won't find it out without hard knocks. What children learns from children, she says, is that there's no sense in grabbing at the whole orange peel and all. If you do, you'll likely not even get the pips, and them's too bitter to eat. She's a shrewd woman, said Dr. Craven, putting on his coat. Well, she's got a way of saying things, ended Mrs. Medlock, much pleased. Sometimes I've said to her, Eh, Susan, if you was a different woman and didn't talk such broad Yorkshire, I've seen the times when I should have said you was clever. That night Colin slept without once awakening, and when he opened his eyes in the morning he lay still and smiled without knowing it smiled because he felt so curiously comfortable. It was actually nice to be awake, and he turned over and stretched his limbs luxuriously. He felt as if tight strings which had held him had loosened themselves and let go. He did not know that Dr. Craven would have said that his nerves had relaxed and rested themselves. Instead of lying and staring at the wall and wishing he had not awakened, his mind was full of the plans he and Mary had made yesterday, of pictures of the garden and of Dickon and his wild creatures. It was so nice to have things to think about, and he had not been awake more than ten minutes when he heard feet running along the corridor, and Mary was at the door. The next minute she was in the room and had run across to his bed, bringing with her a waft of fresh air full of the scent of the morning. "'You've been out! You've been out! There's that nice smell of leaves!' he cried. She had been running, and her hair was loose and blown, and she was bright with the air and pink-cheeked, though he could not see it. "'It's so beautiful,' she said, a little breathless with her speed. "'You never saw anything so beautiful. It has come. I thought it had come that other morning, but it was only coming. It is here now. It has come. The spring. Dickon says so.' "'Has it?' cried Colin, and though he really knew nothing about it, he felt his heart beat. He actually sat up in bed. "'Open the window,' he added, laughing half with joyful excitement and half at his own fancy. Perhaps we may hear golden trumpets. And though he laughed, Mary was at the window in a moment, and in a moment more it was opened wide, and freshness and softness and scents and bird songs were pouring through. That's fresh air, she said. Lie on your back and draw in long breaths. That's what Dickon does when he's lying on the moor. He says he feels it in his veins, and it makes him strong, and he feels as if he could live for ever and ever. Breathe it and breathe it. She was only repeating what Dickon had told her, but she caught Colin's fancy. "'Forever and ever! Does it make him feel like that?' he said, and he did as she told him, drawing in long deep breaths over and over again, until he felt that something quite new and delightful was happening to him. Mary was at his bedside again. "'Things are crowding up out of the earth,' she ran on in a hurry, and there are flowers uncurling, and buds on everything, and the green veil has covered nearly all the grey, and the birds are in such a hurry about their nests for fear they may be too late, that some of them are even fighting for places in the secret garden. And the rose-bush looks as wick as wick can be, and there are primroses in the lanes and woods, and the seeds we planted are up, and Dickon has brought the fox and the crow and the squirrels and a new-born lamb. 
and then she paused for a breath. The newborn lamb Dickon had found three days before lying by its dead mother among the gorse bushes on the moor. It was not the first motherless lamb he had found, and he knew what to do with it. He had taken it to the cottage, wrapped in his jacket, and he had let it lie near the fire, and had fed it warm milk. It was a soft thing with a darling silly baby face, and legs rather long for its body. Dickon had carried it over the moor in his arms, and its feeding bottle was in his pocket with a squirrel, and when Mary had sat under a tree with its limp warmness huddled on her lap, she had felt as if she were too full of strange joy to speak. A lamb, a lamb, a living lamb who lay on your lap like a baby. She was describing it with great joy, and Colin was listening and drawing in long breaths of air when the nurse entered. She started a little at the sight of the open window. She had sat stifling in the room many a warm day because her patient was sure that open windows gave people cold. "'Are you sure you are not chilly, Master Colin?' she inquired. "'No,' was the answer. "'I am breathing long breaths of fresh air. It makes you strong. I am going to get up to the sofa for breakfast. My cousin will have breakfast with me.' The nurse went away, concealing a smile to give the order for two breakfasts. She found the servants' hall a more amusing place than the invalid's chamber, and just now everybody wanted to hear the news from upstairs. There was a great deal of joking about the unpopular young recluse, who, as the cook said, had found his master and good for him. The servants' hall had been very tired of the tantrums, and the butler, who was a man with a family, had more than once expressed his opinion that the invalid would be all the better for a good hiding. When Colin was on his sofa and the breakfast for two was put upon the table, he made an announcement to the nurse in his most Rajah-like manner. "'A boy and a fox and a crow and two squirrels and a new-born lamb are coming to see me this morning. I want them brought upstairs as soon as they come,' he said. "'You are not to begin playing with the animals in the servants' hall and keep them there. I want them here.' The nurse gave a slight gasp and tried to conceal it with a cough. "'Yes, sir,' she answered. "'I'll tell you what you can do,' added Colin, waving his hand. "'You can tell Martha to bring them here. "'The boy is Martha's brother. "'His name is Dickon, and he is an animal charmer.' "'I hope the animals won't bite, Master Colin,' said the nurse. "'I told you he was a charmer,' said Colin austerely. "'Charmer's animals never bite.' "'There are snake charmers in India,' said Mary, "'and they put their snakes' heads in their mouths.' "'Goodness!' shuddered the nurse.' They ate their breakfast, with the morning air pouring in upon them. Colin's breakfast was a very good one, and Mary watched him with serious interest. "'You'll begin to get fatter, just as I did,' she said. "'I never wanted my breakfast when I was in India, and now I always want it.' "'I wanted mine this morning,' said Colin. "'Perhaps it was the fresh air. When do you think Dickon will come?' He was not long in coming. In about ten minutes Mary held up her hand. "'Listen,' she said. "'Did you hear a call?' Colin listened and heard it, the oddest sound in the world to hear inside a house, a hoarse, Caw-caw! "'Yes,' he answered. "'That's soot,' said Mary. "'Listen again. Do you hear a bleat, a tiny one?' "'Oh, yes,' cried Colin, quite flushing. "'That's the newborn lamb,' said Mary. "'He's coming.' Dickon's moorland boots were thick and clumsy, and though he tried to walk quietly they made a clumping sound as he walked through the long corridors. Mary and Colin heard him marching, marching until he passed through the tapestry door on to the soft carpet of Colin's own passage. "'If you please, sir,' announced Martha, opening the door, "'if you please, sir, here's Dickon and his creatures.' Dickon came in smiling his nicest wide smile. The new-born lamb was in his arms, and the little red fox trotted by his side. 
Nut sat on his left shoulder and Soot on his right, and Shell's head and paws peeped out of his coat pocket. Colin slowly sat up and stared and stared, as he had stared when he first saw Mary, but this was a stare of wonder and delight. The truth was that in spite of all he had heard, he had not in the least understood what this boy would be like, and that his fox and his crow and his squirrels and his lamb were so near to him and his friendliness that they seemed almost to be a part of himself. Colin had never talked to a boy in his life, and he was so overwhelmed by his own pleasure and curiosity that he did not even think of speaking. But Dickon did not feel the least shy or awkward. He had not felt embarrassed because the crow had not known his language and had only stared and had not spoken to him the first time they met. Creatures were always like that until they found out about you. He walked over to Colin's sofa and put the newborn lamb quietly on his lap, and immediately the little creature turned to the warm velvet dressing-gown and began to nuzzle and nuzzle into its folds and butt its tight-curled head with soft impatience against his side. Of course no boy could have helped speaking then. "'What's it doing?' cried Colin. "'What does it want?' "'It wants its mother,' said Dickon, smiling more and more. "'I brought it to thee a bit hungry, because I knowed they'd like to see it feed.' He knelt down by the sofa and took a feeding bottle from his pocket. "'Come on, little un,' he said, turning the small woolly white head with a gentle brown hand. "'This is what there's after. They'll get more out of this than there will out of silk velvet coats. There, now!' and he pushed the rubber tip of the bottle into the nuzzling mouth, and the lamb began to suck it with ravenous ecstasy. After that there was no wondering what to say. By the time the lamb fell asleep, questions poured forth, and Dickon answered them all. He told them how he had found the lamb just as the sun was rising three mornings ago. He had been standing on the moor listening to a skylark, and watching him swing higher and higher into the sky, until he was only a speck in the heights of blue. I'd almost lost him, but for his song, and I was wondering how a chap could hear it when it seems as if he'd get out of the world in a minute. And just then I heard something else far off among the gorse bushes. It was a wheat bleating, and I knowed it was a new lamb and was hungry, and I knowed it wouldn't be hungry if it hadn't lost its mother somehow, so I set off searching. Eh, uh, I did have a look for it. I went in and out among the gorse bushes, and round and round, and I always seemed to take the wrong turning, but at last I seed a bit of white by a rock on top of the moor, and I climbed up and found the little un half dead with cold and clemming. While he talked, Soot flew solemnly in and out of the open window, and called remarks about the scenery while Nut and Shell made excursions into the big trees outside, and ran up and down trunks and explored branches. Captain called up near Dickon, who sat on the hearth-rug from preference. They looked at the pictures in the gardening books, and Dickon knew all the flowers by their country names, and knew exactly which ones were already growing in the secret garden. "'I could not say that their name,' he said, pointing to one under which was written Aquilesia. "'But us calls that a columbine. And that there one is a snapdragon, and they both grow wild in the hedges, but these is garden ones, and they're bigger and grander. There's some big clumps of columbine in the garden.' They'll look like a bed of blue and white butterflies fluttering when they're out. I'm going to see them, cried Colin. I'm going to see them. Aye, that they mun, said Mary quite seriously, and they mun not lose no time about it. End of chapter 19 Recording by Ashley Jane Chapter Twenty of the Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett. 
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter twenty. I shall live for ever and ever and ever. But they were obliged to wait more than a week, because first there came some very windy days, and then Colin was threatened with a cold, which two things happening one after the other would no doubt have thrown him into a rage, but that there was so much careful and mysterious planning to do, and almost every day Dickon came in, it only for a few minutes, to talk about what was happening in the moor, and in the lanes and hedges, and on the borders of streams. The things he had to tell about otters and badgers and water-rats' houses, not to mention birds' nests and field-mice and their burrows, were enough to make you almost tremble with excitement when you heard all the intimate details from an animal charmer, and realized with what thrilling eagerness and anxiety the whole busy underworld was working. "'The same as us,' said Dickon. "'Only they have to build their homes every year, and it keeps them so busy they fair scuffle to get em done.' The most absorbing thing, however, was the preparations to be made before Colin could be transported with sufficient secrecy to the garden. No one must see the chair carriage, and Dickon and Mary, after they turned a certain corner of the shrubbery, and entered upon the walk outside the ivied walls. As each day passed, Colin had become more and more fixed in his feeling that the mystery surrounding the garden was one of its greatest charms. Nothing must spoil that. No one must ever suspect that they had a secret. People must think that he was simply going out with Mary and Dickon because he liked them and did not object to their looking at him. They had long and quite delightful talks about their route. They would go up this path and down that one and cross the other, and go round among the fountain flower-beds as if they were looking at the bedding-out plants. The head gardener, Mr. Roach, had been having arranged. That would seem such a rational thing to do that no one would think it at all mysterious. They would turn into the shrubbery walks and lose themselves until they came to the long walks. It was almost as serious and elaborately thought out as the plans of march made by great generals in times of war. Rumours of the new and curious things which were occurring in the invalid's apartment had, of course, filtered through the servants' hall into the stable-yards and out among the gardeners, but notwithstanding this Mr. Roach was startled one day when he received orders from Master Collins' room to the effect that he must report himself in the apartment no outsider had ever seen, as the invalid himself wished to speak to him. "'Well, well,' he said to himself as he hurriedly changed his coat, "'what's to do now?' His Royal Highness that wasn't to be looked at, calling up a man he's never set eyes on. Mr. Roach was not without curiosity. He had never caught even a glimpse of the boy, and had heard a dozen exaggerated stories about his uncanny looks and ways and his insane tempers. The thing he had heard oftenest was that he might die at any moment, and there had been numerous fanciful descriptions of a humped back and helpless limbs given by people who had never seen him. "'Things are changing in this house, Mr. Roach,' said Mrs. Medlock, as she led him up the back staircase to the corridor onto which opened the hitherto mysterious chamber. "'Let's hope they're changing for the better, Mrs. Medlock,' he answered. "'They couldn't well change for the worse,' she continued. "'And queer as it all is, there's them as finds their duties made a lot easier to stand up under. Don't you be surprised, Mr. Roach, if you find yourself in the middle of a menagerie and Martha Sowerby's Dickon more at home than you or me could ever be. There really was a sort of magic about Dickon, as Mary always privately believed. When Mr. Roach heard his name, he smiled quite leniently. He'd be at home in Buckingham Palace or at the bottom of a coal mine, he said, and yet it's not impudence either. He's just fine, is that lad. 
It was perhaps well he had been prepared, or he might have been startled. When the bedroom door was opened, a large crow, which seemed quite at home perched on the high back of a carven chair, announced the entrance for a visitor by saying, "'Gore! Gore!' quite loudly. In spite of Mrs. Medlock's warning, Mr. Roach only just escaped being sufficiently undignified to jump backward. The young Rajah was neither in bed nor on his sofa. He was sitting in an armchair, and a young lamb was standing by him, shaking its tail in feeding lamb fashion, as Dickon knelt giving it milk from a bottle. A squirrel was perched on Dickon's bent back, attentively nibbling a nut. A little girl from India was sitting on a big footstool looking on. "'Here is Mr. Roach, Master Colin,' said Mrs. Medlock. The young Rajah turned and looked his servitor over. At least that was what the head gardener felt happened. "'Oh, you are Roach, are you?' he said. "'I sent for you to give you some very important orders.' "'Very good, sir.' answered Roach, wondering if he was to receive instructions to fell all the oaks in the park or to transform the orchards into water-gardens. "'I'm going out in my chair this afternoon,' said Colin. "'If the fresh air agrees with me, I may go out every day. When I go, none of the gardeners are to be anywhere near the long walk by the garden walls. No one is to be there. I shall go out about two o'clock, and every one must keep away until I send word that they may go back to their work.' "'Very good, sir,' replied Mr. Roach much relieved to hear that the oaks might remain and that the orchards were safe mary said colin turning to her what is that thing you say in india when you have finished talking and want people to go you say you have my permission to go answered mary the rajah waved his hand you have my permission to go roach he said but remember this is very important caw caw remarked the crow hoarsely but not impolitely very good sir thank you sir said Mr. Roach, and Mrs. Medlock took him out of the room. Outside in the corridor, being a rather good-natured man, he smiled until he almost laughed. "'My word,' he said, "'he's got a fine lordly way with him, hasn't he? You'd think he was a whole royal family rolled into one, Prince Constant and all.' "'Eh!' protested Mrs. Medlock. "'We've had to let him trample all over every one of us ever since he had feet, and he thinks that's what folks was born for.' "'Perhaps he'll grow out of it, if he lives,' suggested Mr. Roach. "'Well, there's one thing pretty sure,' said Mrs. Medlock. "'If he does live and that Indian child stays here, "'I'll warrant she teaches him that the whole orange does not belong to him, "'as Susan Sowerby says, and he'll be likely to find out the size of his own quarter.' Inside the room Colin was leaning back on his cushions. "'It's all safe now,' he said, "'and this afternoon I shall see it. "'This afternoon I shall be in it.' Dickon went back to the garden with his creatures, and Mary stayed with Colin. She did not think he looked tired, but he was very quiet before their lunch came, and he was quiet while they were eating it. She wondered why, and asked him about it. "'What big eyes you've got, Colin,' she said. "'When you are thinking, they get as big as saucers. What are you thinking about now?' "'I can't help thinking about what the garden will look like,' he answered. "'The garden?' asked Mary. "'The springtime,' he said. I was thinking that I've never really seen it before. I scarcely went out, and when I did go I never looked at it. I didn't even think about it. I never saw it in India because there wasn't any, said Mary. Shut in and morbid as his life had been, Colin had more imagination than she had, and at least he had spent a good deal of his time looking at wonderful books and pictures. That morning when you ran in and said, It's come, it's come, you made me feel quite queer. It sounded as if things were coming with a great procession, and big bursts and wafts of music. 
I've a picture like it in one of my books. Crowds of lovely people and children, with garlands and branches and with blossoms on them. Everyone laughing and dancing, and crowding and playing on their pipes. That was why I said perhaps we shall hear golden trumpets, and told you to throw open the window. How funny, said Mary. That's really just what it feels like. And if all the flowers and leaves and green things and birds and wild creatures dance past at once, what a crowd it would be. I'm sure they'd dance and sing and flute, and that would be the wafts of music. They both laughed, but it was not because the idea was laughable, but because they both so liked it. A little later the nurse made Colin ready. She noticed that instead of lying like a log while his clothes were put on, he sat up and made some efforts to help himself, and he talked and laughed with Mary all the time. "'This is one of his good days, sir,' she said to Dr. Craven, who dropped in to inspect him. "'It's in such good spirits that it makes him stronger.' "'I'll call in again later in the afternoon, after he's come in,' said Dr. Craven. "'I must see how the going out agrees with him. "'I wish,' in a very low voice, "'that he would let you go with him.' "'I'd rather give up the case this moment, sir, "'than even stay here while it's suggested,' answered the nurse with sudden firmness. "'I hadn't really decided to, to suggest it,' said the doctor, with a slight nervousness. "'We'll try the experiment. Dickens, a lad, I'd trust with a newborn child.' The strongest footman in the house carried Colin downstairs and put him in his wheeled chair, near which Dickon waited outside. After the manservant had arranged his rugs and cushions, the Rajah waved his hand to him and to the nurse. "'You have my permission to go.' he said, and they both disappeared quickly, and it must be confessed giggled when they were safely inside the house. Dickon began to push the wheeled chair slowly and steadily. Mistress Mary walked beside it, and Colin leaned back and lifted his face to the sky. The arch of it looked very high, and the small snowy clouds seemed like white birds floating on outspread wings below its crystal blueness. The wind swept in soft big breaths down from the moor, and was strange with a wild, clear, scented sweetness. Colin kept lifting his thin chest to draw it in, and his big eyes looked as if it were they which were listening, listening instead of his ears. "'There are so many sounds of singing and humming and calling out,' he said. "'What is that scent the puffs of wind bring?' "'It's gorse on the moor that's opening out,' answered Dickon. "'Eh, uh, the bees—' Ah, it wonderful to-day. Not a human creature was to be caught sight of in the paths they took. In fact, every gardener or gardener's lad had been witched away. But they wound in and out among the shrubbery, and out and round the fountain's bed, following their carefully planned route for the mere mysterious pleasure of it. But when at last they turned into the long walk by the ivied walls, the excited sense of an approaching thrill made them, for some curious reason, they could not have explained, to begin to speak in whispers. "'This is it,' breathed Mary. "'This is where I used to walk up and down and wonder and wonder.' "'Is it?' cried Colin, and his eyes began to search the ivy with eager curiousness. "'But I can see nothing,' he whispered. "'There is no door.' "'That's what I thought,' said Mary. Then there was a lovely breathless silence and the chair wheeled on. "'That is the garden where Ben Weatherstaff works,' said Mary. "'Is it?' said Colin. A few yards more and Mary whispered again. "'This is where the robin flew over the wall,' she said. "'Is it?' cried Colin. "'Oh, I wish he'd come again.' "'And that,' said Mary, with solemn delight, pointing under a big lilac bush, "'is where he perched on a little heap of earth and showed me the key.' Then Colin sat up. 
Where? Where? There? he cried, and his eyes were as big as the wolf's and Red Riding Hood when Red Riding Hood felt called upon to remark on them. Dickon stood still in a wheeled chair stopped. And this, said Mary, stepping onto the bed close to the ivy, is where I went to talk to him when he chirped at me from the top of the wall. And this is the ivy the wind blew back, and she took hold of the hanging green curtain. Oh, is it? Is it? gasped Colin. And here is the handle, and here is the door. Dickon, push him in, push him in quickly. And Dickon did it with one strong, steady, splendid push. But Colin had actually dropped back against his curtains, even though he gasped with delight, and he had covered his eyes with his hands, and held them there, shutting out everything, until they were inside, and the chair stopped as if by magic, and the door was closed. Not till then did he take them away and look round and round and round, as Dickon and Mary had done, and over walls and earth and trees and swinging strays and tendrils the fair green veil of tender little leaves had crept and in the grass under the trees, in the grey urns in the alcoves, and here and there everywhere, were touches of splashes of gold and purple and white, and the trees were showing pink and snow above his head, and there were fluttering of wings, and faint sweet pipes and humming, and scents and scents, and the sun fell warm upon his face like a hand with a lovely touch. And in wonder Mary and Dickon stood and stared at him. He looked so strange and different, because a pink glow of colour had actually crept all over him ivory face and neck and hands and all. "'I shall get well! I shall get well!' he cried out. "'Mary! Dickon! I shall get well! And I shall live for ever and ever and ever!' End of chapter 20 Recording by Ashley Jane Chapter 21 of The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 21 Ben Weatherstaff One of the strange things about living in the world is that it is only now and then one is quite sure one is going to live for ever and ever. One knows it sometimes when one gets up at the tender solemn dawn time and goes out and stands alone and throws one's head far back and looks up and up and watches the pale sky slowly changing and flushing and marvellous unknown things happening until the east almost makes one cry out and one's heart stands still at the strange unchanging majesty of the rising of the sun, which has been happening every morning for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. One knows it then for a moment or so, and one knows it sometimes when one stands by oneself in a wood at sunset, and the mysterious deep gold stillness slanting through and under the branches seems to be saying slowly again and again something one cannot quite hear, however much one tries. Then sometimes the immense quiet of the dark blue at night, with millions of stars waiting and watching, makes one sure and sometimes a sound of far-off music makes it true, and sometimes a look in someone's eyes. And it was like that with Colin when he first saw and heard and felt the springtime inside the four high walls of a hidden garden. That afternoon the whole world seemed to devote itself to being perfect and radiantly beautiful and kind to one boy. Perhaps out of pure heavenly goodness the spring came, and crowned everything it probably could into that one place. More than once Dickon paused in what he was doing and stood still, with a sort of growing wonder in his eyes, shaking his head softly. Eh, uh, it is gravely, he said. I'm twelve going on thirteen, and there's a lot of afternoons in thirteen years, but seems to me like I never seen one as gravely as this here. 
"'Aye, it is a gradely one,' said Mary, and she sighed for mere joy. "'I'll warrant it's the gradeliest one as ever was in the world.' "'Does the thing?' said Colin, with dreamy carefulness. "'As happens it was made like this ere all a purpose for me.' "'My word!' cried Mary admiringly. "'That there is a bit of good Yorkshire. "'Thou'rt shaping first-rate, that thou'rt.' "'And delight reigned.' they drew the chair under the plum-tree which was snowy white with blossoms and musical with bees it was like a king's canopy a fairy king's there were flowering cherry-trees near and apple-trees whose buds were pink and white and here and there one had burst open wide between the blossoming arches of the canopy bits of blue sky looked down like wonderful eyes mary and dickon worked a little here and there and colin watched them they brought him things to look at buds which were opening, buds which were tight-closed, bits of twig whose leaves were just showing green, the feather of a woodpecker which had dropped on the grass, the empty shell of some bird early hatched. Dickon pushed the chair slowly round and round the garden, stopping every other moment to let him look at wonders springing out of the earth or trailing down from trees. It was like being taken in state round the country of a magic king and queen and shown all the mysterious riches it contained. "'I wonder if we shall see the robin,' said Colin. "'Thou'll see him often enough after a bit,' answered Dickon. "'When the eggs hatches out, little chaps, he'll be kept so busy it'll make his head swim. "'Thou'll see him flying backward and forward, carrying worms nigh as big as himself, "'and that much noise going on the nest when he gets there, "'as flare flusters him so, as he scarce knows which big mouth to drop the first piece in.' and gaping beaks and squawks on every side. Mother says as when she sees the work, a robin has to keep them gaping beaks filled. She feels like she was a lady with nothing to do. She says she's seen the little chats when it seems like the sweat must be dropping off them, though folk can't see it. This made them giggle so delightedly that they were obliged to cover their mouths with their hands, remembering that they must not be heard. Colin had been instructed as to the law of whispers and low voices several days before. He liked the mysteriousness of it, and did his best, but in the midst of excited enjoyment it is rather difficult never to laugh above a whisper. Every moment of the afternoon was full of new things, and every hour the sunshine grew more golden. The wheeled chair had been drawn back under the canopy, and Dickon had sat down on the grass, and had just drawn out his pipe when Colin saw something he had not had time to notice before. "'That's a very old tree over there, isn't it?' he said. Dickon looked across the grass at the tree, and Mary looked, and there was a brief moment of stillness. "'Yes,' answered Dickon after it, and his low voice had a very gentle sound. Mary gazed at the tree and thought. "'The branches are quite grey, and there's not a single leaf anywhere,' Colin went on. "'It's quite dead, isn't it?' "'Aye,' admitted Dickon. "'But them roses as climbed all over it will near hide every bit of the dead wood when they're full of leaves and flowers it won't look dead then it'll be the prettiest of all mary still gazed at the tree and thought it looks as if a big branch has been broken off said colin i wonder how it was done it's been done many a year answered dickon eh with a sudden relieved start and laying his hand on colin look at that robin there he is he's been foraging for his mate Colin was almost too late, but he just caught sight of him, the flash of red-breasted bird, with something in his beak. He darted through the greenness and into the close-grown corner, and was out of sight.
Colin leaned back on his cushion again, laughing a little. It's taken her tea to her. Perhaps it's five o'clock. I think I'd like some tea myself. And so they were safe. It was magic which sent the robin, said Mary secretly to Dickon afterward. I know it was magic. For both she and Dickon had been afraid Colin might ask something about the tree whose branch had broken off ten years ago, and they had talked it over together, and Dickon had stood and rubbed his head in a troubled way. We mun look as if it wasn't no different from the other trees, he had said. We couldn't never tell him how it broke, poor lad. If he says anything about it, we mun, we mun try to look cheerful. Ay, that we mun, had answered Mary. But she had not felt as if she looked cheerful when she gazed at the tree. She wondered and wondered in those few moments if there was any reality in that other thing Dickon had said. He had gone on rubbing his rust-red hair in a puzzled way, but a nice comforted look had begun to grow in his blue eyes. Mrs. Craven was a very lovely young lady. He had gone on rather hesitatingly. And mother, she thinks maybe she's about Misselthwaite many a time looking after Mester Colin, same as all mothers do when they're took out of the world. They have to come back, they sees. Happen she's been in the garden, and happen it was her set us to work and told us to bring him here. Mary had thought he meant something about magic. She was a great believer in magic. Secretly she quite believed that Dickon worked magic, of course good magic, on everything near him, and that was why people liked him so much and wild creatures knew he was their friend. She wondered indeed if it were not possible that his gift had brought the robin just at the right moment when Colin asked that dangerous question. She felt that his magic was working all the afternoon and making Colin look an entirely different boy. It did not seem possible that he could be the crazy creature who had screamed and beaten and bitten his pillow. Even his ivory whiteness seemed to change. The faint glow of colour which had shone on his face and neck and hands when he first got inside the garden really never quite died away. He looked as if he were made of flesh instead of ivory or wax. They saw the robin carry food to his mate two or three times, and it was so suggestive of afternoon tea that Colin felt they must have some. "'Go and make one of the men-servants bring some in a basket to the road at Endron Walk,' he said, "'and then you and Dickon can bring it here.' It was an agreeable idea, easily carried out, and when the white cloth was spread upon the grass with hot tea and buttered toast and crumpets, a delightfully hungry meal was eaten, and several birds on domestic errands paused to inquire what was going on, and were led into investigating crumbs with great activity. Nut and Shell whisked up trees with pieces of cake, and Soot took the entire half of a buttered crumpet into a corner, and pecked at and examined and turned it over, and made hoarse remarks about it until he decided to swallow it joyfully in one gulp. The afternoon was dragging toward its mellow hour. The sun was deepening the gold of its lances. The bees were going home, and the birds were flying past less often. Dickon and Mary were sitting on the grass, the tea-basket was repacked ready to be taken home to the house, and Colin was lying against his cushions with his heavy locks pushed back from his forehead, and his face looking quite a natural colour. "'I don't want this afternoon to go,' he said, "'but I shall come back to-morrow, and the day after, and the day after, and the day after.' "'You'll get plenty of fresh air, won't you?' said Mary. "'I'm going to get nothing else,' he answered. "'I've seen the spring now, and I'm going to see the summer.' I'm going to see everything grow here. I'm going to grow here myself. That there will, said Dickon, 
"'Us'll have thee walking about here and digging same as us other folk afore long.' Colin flushed tremendously. "'Walk?' he said. "'Dig? Shall I?' Dickens' glance at him was delicately cautious. Neither he nor Mary had ever asked if there was anything the matter with his legs. "'For sure there will,' he said stoutly. "'The... there's got legs of the own. Same as other folks?' Mary was rather frightened until she heard Colin's answer. "'Nothing really ails them,' he said, "'but they are so thin and weak. They shake that I am afraid to try and stand on them.' Both Mary and Dickon drew a relieved breath. "'When they stops being afraid, that'll stand on them,' Dickon said with renewed cheer, "'and that'll stop being afraid in a bit.' "'I shall,' said Colin, and he lay still as if he were wondering about things. They were really very quiet for a little while. The sun was dropping lower. It was that hour when everything stills itself, and they really had had a busy and exciting afternoon. Colin looked as if he were resting luxuriously. Even the creatures had ceased moving about, and had drawn together and were resting near them. Soot had perched on a low branch and drawn up one leg, and dropped the grey film drowsily over his eyes. Mary privately thought he looked as if he might snore in a minute. In the midst of this stillness it was rather startling when Colin half lifted his head and exclaimed in a loud, suddenly alarmed whisper, "'Who is that man?' Dickon and Mary scrambled to their feet. "'Man?' they both cried in low, quick voices. Colin pointed to the high wall. "'Look!' he whispered excitedly. "'Just look!' Mary and Dickon wheeled about and looked. There was Ben Weatherstaff's indignant face glaring at them over the wall from the top of a ladder. He actually shook his fist at Mary. "'If I wasn't a bachelor, and there was a wrench of mine,' he cried, "'I'd give thee a hiding!' He mounted another step threateningly, as if it were his energetic intention to jump down and deal with her. But as she came toward him, he evidently thought better of it, and stood on the top step of his ladder, shaking his fist down at her. "'I never thought much of thee,' he harangued. I couldn't abide thee the first time I set eyes on thee, a scrawny buttermilk-faced young besom, Alice asking questions and poking their nose where it wasn't wanted. I never knowed how they got so thick with me, if it hadn't a been for the robin. Drat him! Ben Weatherstaff, called out Mary, finding her breath. She stood below him and called up to him with a sort of gasp. Ben Weatherstaff, it was the robin who showed me the way. Then it did seem as if Ben really would scramble down on the side of the wall. He was so outraged. "'That young badden,' he called down at her, laying the badness on a robin. Not but what is impudent in her for anything. Him showing neither way. Him! Eh, that young note!' She could see his next words burst out because he was overpowered by curiosity. "'However in the world did they get in?' "'It was the robin who showed me the way.' she protested obstinately. He didn't know he was doing it, but he did. And I can't tell you from here while you're shaking your fist at me. He stopped shaking his fist very suddenly at that moment, and his jaw actually dropped as if he stared over her head at something he saw coming over the grass toward him. At the first sound of his torrent of words, Colin had been so surprised that he only sat up and listened as if he were spellbound. But in the midst of it he had recovered himself and beckoned imperiously to Dickon. "'Will me over there,' he commanded. "'Will me quite close and stop right in front of him. "'And this, if you please, this is what Ben Weatherstaff beheld "'and which made his jaw drop. 
a wheeled chair with luxurious cushions and robes, which came toward him looking rather like some sort of state-coach, because a young Rajah leaned back in it with royal command in his great black-rimmed eyes, and a thin white hand extended haughtily toward him. And it stopped right under Ben Weatherstaff's nose. It was really no wonder his mouth dropped open. "'Do you know who I am?' demanded the Rajah. How Ben Weatherstaff stared! His red old eyes fixed themselves on what was before him, as if he were seeing a ghost. He gazed and gazed, and gulped a lump down his throat, and did not say a word. "'Do you know who I am?' demanded Colin, still more imperiously. "'Answer!' Ben Weatherstaff put his gnarled hand up and passed it over his eyes and over his forehead, and then he did answer in a queer, shaky voice. "'Who thou art?' he said. "'I that I do.' with the mother's eyes staring at me out of that face. Lord knows how they came here, but thou'rt the poor cripple. Colin forgot that he ever had a back. His face flushed scarlet, and he sat bolt upright. I am not a cripple, he cried out furiously. I'm not. Is not, cried Mary, almost shouting up the wall in her fierce indignation. He's not got a lump as big as a pin. I looked, and there was none there, not one. Ben Weatherstaff passed his hand over his forehead again, and gazed as if he could never gaze enough. His hands shook, and his mouth shook, and his voice shook. He was an ignorant old man, and a tactless old man, and he could only remember the things he had heard. "'The... the hasn't got a crooked back?' he said hoarsely. "'No!' shouted Colin. "'The... the hasn't got crooked legs?' quavered Ben more hoarsely yet. It was too much. The strength which Colin usually threw into his tantrums rushed through him now in a new way. Never yet had he been accused of crooked legs, even in whispers, and the perfectly simple belief in their existence which was revealed by Ben Weatherstaff's voice was more than Rajah flesh and blood could endure. His anger and insulted pride made him forget everything but this one moment, and filled him with a power he had never known before, an almost unnatural strength. "'Come here!' he shouted to Dickon, and he actually began to tear the coverings off his lower limbs and disentangle himself. "'Come here! Come here! This minute!' Dickon was by his side in a second. Mary caught his breath in a short gasp, and felt herself turn pale. "'He can do it! He can do it! He can do it! He can!' she gabbled over to herself under her breath as fast as ever she could. There was a brief, fierce scramble. The rugs were tossed on the ground. Dickon held Colin's arm. The thin legs were out, the thin feet were on the grass. Colin was standing upright, upright, as straight as an arrow and looking strangely tall, his head thrown back and his strange eyes flashing lightning. "'Look at me!' he flung at Ben Weatherstaff. "'Just look at me, you! Just look at me!' "'It's as straight as I am,' cried Dickon. "'It's as straight as any lad in Yorkshire.' What Ben Weatherstaff did Mary thought queer beyond measure. He choked and gulped, and suddenly tears ran down his weather-wrinkled cheeks as he struck his old hands together. Eh, he burst forth. The lies folk tells thou'rt as thin as a lath and as white as a wraith, but there's not a knob on thee. Thou'll make a mon yet. God bless thee. Dickon held Colin's arm strongly, but the boy had not begun to falter. He stood straighter and straighter and looked Ben Weatherstaff in the face. I'm your master he said, when my father is away, and you are to obey me. This is my garden. Don't you dare say a word about it. You get down from that ladder and go to the long walk, and Miss Mary will meet you and bring you here. I want to talk to you. 
We did not want you, but now you will have to be in the secret. Be quick! Ben Weatherstaff's crabbed old face was still wet with that one queer rush of tears. It seemed as if he could not take his eyes from thin, straight Colin standing on his feet with his head thrown back. Eh, lad, he almost whispered. Eh, my lad. And then, remembering himself, he suddenly touched his hat, gardener fashion, and said, Yes, sir. Yes, sir and obediently disappeared as he descended the ladder. End of chapter 21 Recording by Ashley Jane When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.